Okay, thank you very, very much. Um, slightly worried you're here under false pretenses because this morning I looked at my abstract and the talk I wrote doesn't really fit the abstract, but it does fit the title still. So I'm hoping you won't feel you're here lured by false advertising. Um, so I'm going to talk about mathematical models in population genetics and a good place to start actually seemed to be population genetics. What is it? And it's more than the last 20 or 30 years where mathematics has been important. So as a subject, as a scientific subject, it's rather young. It's only a century or so old. And we usually trace it back to what we call the modern evolutionary synthesis, which was when the work of Darwin up here and Mendel were reconciled. So what were their theories? So here's natural selection in a nutshell. So Darwin's theory says that heritable traits that incre increase reproductive success will become more common in a population. So if, for example, being taller makes you more likely to have more children, and being taller is a trait that you tend to ha hand on to your offspring, then being taller will become more common in the population. The population will gradually become taller. And for it to work, for it to make any difference to a population, it requires variability. It's no good if everyone's the same. And offspring must be similar to their parents. That variability and that heritability are given to us by Mendel. So what does Mendel say? Mendel says that traits are determined by genes. I put determined in inverted commas because actually it's a bit more subtle than that, but traits are definitely influenced by genes. And genes occur in different types. That gives us that variability that we need. And offspring inherit genes from their parents. So we've got heritability. So why did it take 50 years for anyone to notice that these two theories could be brought together? And perhaps the main reason is that whereas Darwin tended to concentrate on, the, on natural selection acting through the accumulation of lots and lots of very small changes to get something really big, so these are his famous Galapagos finches, and to get from this beak to this beak was not something that happened overnight, it was an accumulation of lots of very, very small changes. Mendel, on the other hand, um, famously looked at peas, and he was interested in traits which really were determined by genes. So whether a pea is green or yellow, wrinkled or round, whether it has a, um, a green pod or a yellow pod, a constricted pod or an inflated pod, these are all things determined just by single genes. They're very discrete. It's a very different sort of variability from Darwin and his finches. But nonetheless, um, the theories were brought together, and they were brought together by mathematics. And the mathematicians in question, um, we usually attribute, anyway, the modern evolutionary th synthesis to three guys. So we have Fisher over here, R.A. Fisher, Sewell Wright, and J.B.S. Haldane. So Fisher, very famous British mathematician or statistician, depending on your culture, um, Fisher was interested in the data that was being collected by biometricians. So they collected data on things like height and weight of parents and their offspring. And Fisher noticed that this could all be explained by Mendelian genetics as long as you allowed a particular trait to be de determined by lots and lots of Mendelian factors, so a lot of genes influencing the trait, each having a very small influence, and a bit of environmental noise. And in the process, he actually invented much of modern statistics, and in particular the analysis of variance. This isn't the usual picture of Fisher, but that's what he would have looked like at the time of the evolutionary synthesis. Usually we show this grey man with a long white beard. Over here on the right, we've got Sewell Wright, so Sewell Wright was a, um, an American who was trained in mathematics and then lured into biology by a woman whose name I wrote down because I knew I'd never remember it, um, Wilhelmina Entman Key. I hope you forgive me for not remembering that. But she's interesting. She was one of the first women to get a PhD from the University of Chicago. And while um, Wright was at Cold Spring Harbor, she uh, lured him into biology. And he developed a lot of what we now call the theory of genetic drift, 
which is understanding randomness. This is a long time before probability was a, fa a fashionable mathematical subject, but he was understanding the randomness in a population just because it's finite. N it's inherently stochastic, this nature, the nature of reproduction. And he also developed notions, things like fitness landscapes, which we still use today. This man here, J.B.S. Haldane, Oxford-trained mathematician, and you might guess, looking at the photo, that he had perhaps the most colourful of the careers of these three gentlemen. Um, he wrote an excellent children's book, My Friend Mr Leakey, which I thoroughly recommend to you. Um, he was married to a very interesting uh, journalist who brought very interesting people into his life and into his household, and so he left Oxford and travelled the world and finally died in India, very sadly. But while these three would certainly have agreed that Mendel and Darwin were very compatible theories, and indeed they, they um, reinforced one another, what they certainly did not agree on was the answer to this question. So what is the relative importance of the different forces of evolution that are acting on my population? So natural selection, in the sense of Darwin. Population structure, because we don't all live in a big melting pot, we're all sort of spread around and we uh, live in different spatial locations and in different, different genetic um, forms. And genetic drift, this randomness that Wright set up. And I've actually deliberately put Fisher and Wright rather a long way away from each other because they really did not get on. They had a very long-standing feud because while Wright thought that genetic drift was a very important evolutionary force, Fisher thought that it would be completely dwarfed by natural selection. And he and Ford wrote a number of rather aggressive papers against Wright's theory. So if these incredibly intelligent and innovative thinkers were unable to cast light on this problem, why do we think we might be able to shed any new light on it now? And the answer lies in the data. So Wright, you will notice, is um, holding a guinea pig. This is not because in the 1930s, when this photograph was taken, the Americans used guinea pigs as blackboard erasers, as it might appear. <laughs> it's actually because he bred guinea pigs. So these guys could only view genetic information indirectly by phenotype. And Wright developed uh, the the, our understanding of the way that different coat colours are inherited in uh, guinea pigs and um, also rats, rabbits and lots of other, um, other mammals of similar descent. Nowadays, we can view DNA sequences directly, and frankly, our data is a lot less cute. So here is what <laughs> geneticists do with modern data. This, um, thanks to Jonathan Marcini for this. Actually, if you go to the Department of Statistics, you can see um, this pattern on the, ball, uh, on the doors on the second floor. Um, th this is uh, how you can tell there are statistical geneticists at work. And what it corresponds to is data from 40 different human beings. They're from the um, Thousand Genomes Project, in fact. And they all come from an area in Nigeria. And what's been recorded, this is um, quite a long sequence of DNA, but all this records is the differences between individuals. And that's what geneticists do. They record the differences between individuals, or rather between the DNA sequences in individuals. And from those differences, they infer something about the way that individuals are related to one another. And we call those um, relationships genealogical trees, and we'll see a lot of those in the rest of the talk. So as mathematicians, if we want to address that key question about the different importance of the different forces of evolution, what we need are forwards-in-time models that say how those forces of evolution would change gene frequencies. How would they change the frequencies of different genetic types as we move forwards? But then we want to be able to compare that to data, or rather to what geneticists infer from their data. And so we need to be able to say backwards in time, if a population were evolving according to one of our models, what would those genealogical trees, what would those systems of relatedness look like? 
um, in individuals sampled from our population. Okay, so let's just have a quick think about backwards in time. So I've said genealogical tree, and I'm deliberately saying that not family tree. So let's try and explain why. If I want to plot my family tree, what do I need? I need my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and so on. And the number of individuals in each generation is growing really very, very quickly. I think that's quite nicely illustrated by Mark Wallinger's Y. You can find this sculpture in the grounds of Magdalen College. And thanks for, to David Clary for sending me the photo. After just nine generations, which here are meant to represent generations of academics in Magdalen, we're a little self-important in Magdalen, um, there are 512 leaves on this tree. It doesn't take very long to get to a very big number. Nine generations, 512. Now, natural populations are finite. And so you can't indefinitely go on doubling the number of people in your family tree without running out of individuals to put in your family tree. So some individuals must occur more than once. And let's see a real example of that. And I admit I've chosen a rather extreme example. But here is the family tree, or the pedigree, of King Charles II of Spain. And so you know, here's Charles himself, and here's his father, and here are his um, paternal grandparents, and then great-grandparents, and so on. And then here's his mother, and here are his um, grand maternal grandparents. And then we see that his great-grandparents appear to be duplicated already. So he's a very extreme case, because his mother was his father's niece. Now, this is really quite extreme inbreeding. And it goes on as you go back in the tree. You'll see there are lots of instances of lineages coming together. This really isn't a tree. And in fact, it is an extreme case because I'm afraid Charles II was actually um, uh, very seriously handicapped by genetic disease and died without leaving offspring. So let's try and find a family tree which is a little less politically inspired because obviously a lot of the marriages here were not random. They were so that bits of Spain stayed um, property of Spain. Um, and I'm going to move to a, a very apolitical organism, um, the, the snail. And one of the reasons I'm moving to the snail is because drawing these pictures gets very, very difficult if you separate your population into males and females, and snails are hermaphrodite. But let me assure you, the mathematical models are almost identical, just much harder to draw with the programme that I was using in a hotel room in Paris yesterday. So <laughs> um, it's very carefully prepared, the structure. So, here what we've done is we've taken five snails, and snails are not monogamous, so we're supposing that in the previous generation, each snail just picks two parents at random. So, for example, this one chooses that parent and that parent, and any snail can breed with any other snail because they're hermaphrodites, and so they've successfully produced this offspring. And as we trace backwards in time, so this is my present-day population, and we trace backwards in time, and we see we get quite a complicated network of relationships developing. And in particular, it's already the case that in this generation, this individual, this individual, and this individual all have, they sit in the family trees, in the sense of the pedigree of Charles II, of all of the individuals down here. So all five of these individuals are in some sense descended from these three guys. This one left no offspring, so left no one in the current generation. And it took me a long time to adjust the picture so that this guy doesn't actually, is not actually ancestral to everybody. There's one person miss out, little exercise for you to work out which one. In fact, the reason that it took me so long to work it out is it's actually very difficult. So if this were genuinely done at random instead of me just picking individuals, after logarithm, log two of the number of um, uh, individuals here, that number of generations back, we expect to see an individual who's ancestral to everybody. 
after 1.7 log 2 n generations, with very small variation around that for large populations, everybody in the ancestral population is either ancestral to nobody now or ancestral to everybody now. So this suggests actually that this is not the best way to view ancestry. It's, it's too joined up. So let me just um, actually convince you that that guy there was ancestral to everyone. And not only is he ancestral to everyone, I've just coloured in um, cyan, I believe this colour is called, all the individuals who are descended from him as I come down the tree, without paying any attention as to whether he transmits ge genetic material. I've just looked at his offspring, or her offspring, since it's a snail. And you'll see that not only um, is everybody descended from this person, but there are multiple routes through this graph which get me from here to here. Okay. On the other hand, if I start thinking about genetics, so you may wonder why there are small circles, the small circles I'm thinking of as individual genes. And if I just trace back the individual genes in this generation, then what I've done is I've used uh, red lines to indicate where genes were inherited from. So each chooses not only an individual for a parent, but actually this gene chooses one of those two circles. Then this character, who is ancestral to everybody in the sense of pedigrees, has not transmitted any of their own genetic material to the current generation. Moreover, as I go backwards in time, because each um, gene chooses a unique parent in the previous generation, the structure that I get if I only look at genes is going to be much simpler because the number of lines that I trace as I go backwards in time can only get smaller. It's not getting bigger. I'm not having to look at two parents for a single gene. A single gene only has one parent. And uh, that's easier to see if I just focus on one. So what I've done is I've just arbitrarily decided I'll only trace the left-hand gene from each of the um, individuals in the present-day population. And then you can see that as I trace backwards in time, there's a unique path that connects, for example, this guy to the ancestral generation. But occasionally, two paths will meet, and thereafter they will be the same. And we can encode that information in a very simple picture like this. And so what we're going to do is, instead of following the haploid individuals and trying to think about where everybody came from with both of their... Sorry, the diploid individuals, and think about where everybody came from with both of their genes, we're just going to trace gene by gene and see where individuals came from. And that leads us to the simplest imaginable model of inheritance. And this is called the Wright-Fisher model. I don't think they'd like their names being tied together like this, but I'm afraid they are inextricably connected in population genetics. And the Wright-Fisher model is probably the most important model in mathematical population genetics, so it's <coughs> a bit disturbing how simple it is. So the idea is that each individual chooses one parent in the previous generation. And I'm thinking of an individual now as being a gene. So each gene chooses one parent in the previous generation. And generations are discrete, and what happens in one generation doesn't affect what happens in the next generation. Now, I told you before that in a pedigree, we'd expect a common ancestor to the population on the order of log 2n generations ago. So let's have a quick think about how far we have to trace back to get a common genetic ancestor. So let's take a sample of size 2 from this population and think about how long do we have to go back before we get a common genetic ancestor. Well, the probability that my two individuals had a common parent is just 1 over n, because the first chooses a parent, just uniformly at random, and the second one's got to choose the same parent, and the chances of them choosing the same parent is 1 over n. If they didn't choose the same parent, the chance they chose the same grandparent is 1 over n. So the number of generations I wait until my sample of size 2 has a common parent, com common parental gene, is the same as the number of times I have to roll an n-sided die before I get an n. And that's going to be on the order of n generations. So whereas pedigree had common ancestry after this very small number, log 2n generations, 
genetics, our genetic ancestry, is determined over much longer timescales. And for just a pair of individuals, it'll be about n generations ago. And in fact, for the whole population, it'll be about two n generations ago. So not very much longer. Okay. Now, the models we're interested in, as you may already have spotted, are very, very crude. They're trying to capture just some caricature of the way that populations reproduce. We're not going to go into fine detail of what's happening locally. So let us suppose that population size is very big. Otherwise, you wouldn't use this kind of a model. So we said that for a sample of size 2, it's going to take on the order of n generations before we see a common ancestor. So let's use n, uh, n generations as our, our unit of time. So that the time for two individuals to find a common ancestor is of order 1. Okay. Well, if I do that, then the time to the most recent common ancestor is 1 over n times the number of rolls of my n-sided die until I get an n. And it's well known that that is very well approximated by something completely independent of n called an exponential random variable with parameter 1. So as long as I measure time in these ludicrously big, gen big um, units of n generations, the time to the most recent common ancestor of a sample of size 2 is on the order of 1, and it's given by an exponential 1 random variable. Now, let's take a bigger sample. 2 is a bit boring. So let's take a sample of size k bigger than or equal to 3. The probability that at least three individuals in my sample have a common parent is of order 1 over n squared, I claim. Because the first one chooses a parent, the second one's got to choose the same parent, that's 1 over n. The third one's got to choose the same parent again, so that's 1 over n squared. I'm not going to see that happen, because it's going to take me about n squared generations before I see an event like that, and by then all my lineages will have coalesced pairwise. So I'm never going to see three lineages coming together in a single generation. In the same way, I'm also never going to see what we call simultaneous mergers, where two distinct pairs of individuals come together in the same generation, because the probability this pair comes together is 1 over n, probability this pair comes together is 1 over n, so I'd have to wait n squared generations to see it, and that's too long. It, all my lineages will have coalesced by pairwise coalescence by the time that happens. And so what we're left with is it's an observation of Kingman um, in 1982, really, or rather he proved it, lots of people had observed it, was that if I have a sample of size k, so here's a sample of size 4 from my population, measuring time in these units of n generations, the time that I have to wait as I trace backwards in time before anything happens in my genealogical trees, in these trees telling me how individuals are related to each other, is just the minimum of the 4 choose 2, which is whatever it is, 3 exponential 1 random variables that tell me when they find their common ancestry pairwise. And the minimum of 4 choose 2 exponential random variables is just an exponential random variable, and we've just denoted it here. And now I've got three lineages left, and the extra time I must wait before the next thing happens is the minimum of 3 choose 2 exponential random variables, and so on. Okay. And here, this um, is a picture of what uh, this relatedness looks like for a sample of size 1,000. I'm grateful to Bob Griffiths for producing this for me many years ago. Um, it's, as you can see... A lot of stuff happens very, very quickly, but then we're down to rather a small number of lineages, and it takes a long, long time after, after this initial flurry of activity before very much happens. Okay. So um, we've got a forwards-in-time model for the uh, allele frequencies and a corresponding backwards-in-time model given by Kingman's coalescent. So how does it do with data? Well, you'll probably guess that this isn't really a very good model of how populations really reproduce, but you might hope that you could reproduce it in a laboratory. And in the 1950s, Bury tried just that. So what he did was he took a population of fruit flies, this is a Drosophila melanogaster, 
And he took the fruit flies in two different forms that differed just very slightly in their eye colour. So half of them, as when he started out, carried a gene which just slightly changes the eye colour. And he took 100 populations, each consisting of eight males and eight females, and each started with half with one eye colour and half with the other eye colour. And he propagated these populations for 20 generations. And he compared the results that he got to um, the predictions of the Wright Fisher model. Now, how did he do it? He actually had to keep the population size constant. So in each generation, he resampled to always keep the, the um, population size at 16 individuals for each of those populations. So it must have been, it doesn't seem a very big experiment by these you know, modern standards of big data, but it must have been quite a tedious experiment to perform. And here's his results. So the Wright Fisher model tells us that on average, actually the proportion of the um, eye, different flavours of eye in our population is not going to change, but there will be some variability in that, and it gives us a prediction for the variability. And he plotted, so what, this is 1 minus 1 minus 1 over n to the number of generations is what the picture should predict. So he plotted, or I've plotted his results, so here are um, the results of his experiments, and this is a variance that we're plotting, a variance against generation. So in population, at the beginning, we started with exactly a half a half in all the populations, so there was no variability. And this is just saying something about how the populations vary as time goes on. And eventually, all the populations will be either one eye colour or the other eye colour. And at that point, this variance will hit 0.25. So you can see it's, it's rising steadily. Now, I'd like to tell you that this straight line was the prediction of the Wright-Fisher model. But that wouldn't be completely honest. This line, the dotted line, is the prediction of the Wright-Fisher model. And it turns out, though, that this line is almost the Wright-Fisher model, but instead of taking the true population size, which in this case is 16, I've substituted 11 and a half. And by virtue of doing that, I mean, I know it's not a perfect fit, but actually, for an experiment of this size, that's pretty good. And it turns out that's universal. It is pretty good. As long as I don't use the real population size, and I put in a population size to suit my purposes, the Kingman coalescent or the Wright-Fisher model is a pretty good approximation even to natural populations, as long as I sample individuals from far away and far enough away from one another that I'm not seeing local effects brought about by them living in very close proximity, for example. And as an example of the sort of scale of this fudge factor, so how much do I have to change the population size to make things fit? I, I think the human population is rather nice. So, um, for the whole world, I would need to take an, an effective population size. I'd need to substitute n, n to be about 50,000 in my Wright-Fisher model. And of course, the true population size of humans is 7 billion. So the difference between the number I plug in to make my model fit and the true number is um, what, five orders of magnitude. So it seems crazy that this should work. It's completely mad that it should work, but actually, Beyond that correction, it fits the data extremely well. Okay, now we would like to understand why. And in particular, we would like to understand, if we're going to understand our basic question, how the different forces of evolution feed into this NE to make it all work so well. What the right Fisher model is doing is it's just modelling the genetic drift. But how would selection alter NE? How does spatial structure alter NE? And I started working on this stuff about uh, 20 years ago when Nick Barton, who is a very distinguished evolutionary geneticist now at IST in Austria, came to see me. 
And next, have a look, I'm, I'm studying these grasshoppers. Here they are. And they live in the Maritime Alps. As you'll see later, he always chooses nice mountain ranges for his um, field trips. And they, they really are in a spatial continuum. And I want to know how this spatial structure is affecting the genetics of Podisma pedestris. And um, I should tell you why it's called Podisma pedestris, because it is a pedestrian grasshopper. It's hard to see, but this is the vestigial wing. This thing cannot fly. Okay, so it crawls around, hops around, it doesn't move very far in its lifetime. So the spatial structure to Podisma pedestris probably looks pretty much like the plane. And at the same, same time, Nick said, oh, and by the way, right, and Malico almost solved this in the 1940s. So Gustav Malico is another of the greats of um, population genetics. And the way that Wright and Malico solved it was they took the Wright Fisher model and they adapted it to a spatial setting. So they said, let's suppose individuals are scattered across space. This pointer is really not good. There we go. So here are individuals scattered ac across space. And um, it's in a kind of uniform way that each of them just chooses where they fall uniformly at random. And this has been drawn on a, a torus for reasons that will become clear in due course. And I will show um, some realizations of a simulation due to Jerome Kelleher, who I think is also sitting up there somewhere. And the way that their model works is it evolves in discrete generations, just like the Wright-Fisher model. And the number of offspring that each individual produces in each generation is taken to be a Poisson random variable with parameter 1. So why is that what they chose? Well, they chose that because in the Wright-Fisher model, if you look at the number of, number of offspring that a single in individual produces, for large n, it's approximately a Poisson. It's very, very close to being just a Poisson. So now here... Uh, Mitch Gooding uh, drew this for me. Here's a histogram which just tells you this is how many times I should expect to get zero offspring. This is how many times I should expect to get one offspring, so quite a lot of the time. And this is two offspring and so on. But on the average, I produce one offspring. Okay. And I can't have my offspring all sitting on top of each other. That wouldn't be right. And so I scatter them around the position of the parents according to a Gaussian distribution. So they're just distributed close by in a nice symmetric way. So Understandably, Wright and Malico thought that this sort of pattern would persist. That if they looked in their, at their population in generation 10, it would still look quite a lot like this one. It would still look pretty uniformly spread. And working on that assumption, they were able to do what was the equivalent in the 1940s of writing down those genealogical trees, telling us how individuals in the population were related to each other and genetically how um, their, the correlations between their genetic type would decay with distance. They predicted it would decay approximately exponentially. But then in 1975, Joe Felsenstein noticed that actually their assumptions were inconsistent. And this is um, Jerome's simulation, which he's probably rather embarrassed I'm using because he did it for a lab meeting a long time ago. But here's the initial condition. And what he's done is working on a torus, and he's supposed that um, the population really does evolve according to the right Malico model. And after 10 generations, this is what it looks like. So the population is still pretty much 1,000. It's not changed very much. But we're getting these white spaces <coughs> developing. After 100 generations, the population's still pretty close to 1,000, actually. But we really are getting a lot of white space. The population is really clumping. By a thousand generations, the population is caving in and realizing that mathematics cannot be defeated because there's a theorem that says it has got to die out eventually. And it's noticing that it really ought to. So it's down to close to 300. But those individuals that are left are really clustered together. Okay. Now, Felsenstein first observed this when he was working on the whole 
of the real plane, whole of Euclidean space. And he said, oh, well, maybe it's just because I've been working with an infinite population. Real populations are finite. Let's look at a finite population. So he moved on to a torus. And then he noticed, well, unfortunately on a torus, either the population blows up or it dies out. So it will die out if I just have on average one offspring. And if I slightly increase that, the population will just explode eventually. So that doesn't work. And then he said, well, let's suppose that somehow the total population size on my torus is exogenously specified. I'm going to fix it to be 1,000. But we can see from this simulation that that's still not working, actually, because the population size here didn't change very much. It's still pretty close to 1,000, but we're still getting clumping. And Felsenstein realised that this was going to happen, and at that point he said, OK, I give up. And he wrote a paper which famously dubbed this problem the pain in the torus. Uh, and so the challenge that Nick was really throwing down to me was to solve the pain in the torus. All right. We wanted to produce a model which was a little bit like the right malaco assumption that the population would be distributed in space in a relatively uniform manner, but which actually had a stability to it so that we could write down genealogical trees in a consistent way. And we wanted that model to address one or two other issues. So we've already seen that genetic diversity is much, much lower than what you'd expect from census numbers. That's another way of saying the effective population size is orders of magnitude different from the census population size. That's that same statement in other words. Another thing was, I said that Wright and Malico observed that the correlations between genetic types would decay sort of exponentially with distance apart. That's sort of true-ish over some scales, but then when you look over larger scales, the rate of exponential decay appears to have decreased, and you get longer-range correlations than seems reasonable. And a possible explanation for this is that the demographic history of many populations is really dominated by large-scale events. So imagine I'm a population of plants living on a forest floor. Every 100 generations or so, a forest fire sweeps through and completely wipes the population out, and then it gets very, very rapidly replaced, recolonized. And that's going to lead to both uh, reduction in genetic diversity and large-scale correlations in allele frequencies. Now, I am not claiming the model I'm about to write down. I think it is quite a good model for forest fires. It's not a very good model um, for glacial maxima, for ice ages. But I like to show this slide just to remind me to give you a notion of the sort of timescales over which evolution is happening. So remember we said the effective population size for the human population, let's say if we just look at European humans, is about 20,000. So that means that my genetic composition is being determined over 20,000 generations. And intergeneration time, I don't know, we could argue over it, but let's say 20 years. So that means we're talking about timescales of hundreds of thousands of years. Right? The last ice age, or the last glacial maximum, Northern Europe was largely covered in ice. Humans did not live there. And that was only 18,000 years ago. So from the point of view of genetics, that's just a twinkling of an eye. So these large-scale events are really going to have influenced our, our um, genetic composition. And we, we can't simply ignore them. They really are going to have affected things. Okay. Another thing I wanted to say before showing you the model that we came up with is when we derived, derived um, the Kingman coalescent, I emphasised that for large populations, we'd never see three lineages merging in a single generation because of having a common parent in a single generation because individuals had so many parents to choose from, you never got three of them choosing the same ones on the timescale that we were looking at where you just get pairs choosing the same one. And that was just because n squared was much bigger than n. But in a spatial continuum, 
if I'm an individual and I'm looking around me for potential parents in the previous generation, that may not be true. N may not be very large. And it may be the case that N squared is really not so much bigger than N. And so I will see mergers of not just two ancestral lineages at a time, but three, four, five, any number. Okay, so here's a, here's a model, or a first, a first stab at a model. We're going to suppose the population's just spread out in space in the same way as Wright and Malico did. But now reproduction isn't going to be based on individuals, it's going to be based on events. And this is the key insight. So what we do is we throw events down. You could do this in discrete generations. Mathematically, it's convenient to do it in overlapping generations, as we say. So we throw it down one event at a time. And a reproduction event is just going to affect a region which is determined by the nature of the event. So here is just a disk, centre X, and radius R. Now, if the region I throw down is empty, I don't do anything because there's no population there to reproduce. But if it's not empty, first, among all the individuals living there, I choose a parent uniformly at random. And the first thing to notice is, if I'm living in a very crowded region, the odds of being chosen as parent get to be very small. So my reproductive success, if I live in a very crowded region, is not big, it's very small. On the other hand, if I'm in a very sparsely populated region, I will be picked, okay? And that's the key, that's what prevents that clumping that we saw um, from Felsenstein's observations. Okay, so I've chosen this individual. I'm going to kill a proportion of the population. In this example, I allowed the parent to die. I don't have to. And I replace them. So they, they are killed with some probability that I just specify independently. So each of them flips a coin that comes up heads with probability U, and if it comes up heads, they die. And then I replace them with offspring, and I, they're scattered in the same way as the parental population was scattered, just by picking points uniformly at random in uh, the region, and the distribution of the number of offspring, it's random, but it's chosen to roughly replenish the population. So the population density should be, roughly speaking, constant. Okay, so, and then we remove the dead individuals, and there's my new population. Okay, so how does this work as a model? It's obviously very crude, I mean, it's a little bit like a right Fisher model. Does it work at all? Well, it overcomes the pain in the torus. It does have a nice stationary distribution with populations distributed uniformly across space. It allows us to incorporate large-scale extinction recolonization events very easily. And it also is easy to extend to include things like natural selection. So, for example, I might select the parent not just uniformly among those in the region, but according to their genetic type, weighted by their genetic type. Or I might choose individuals to die according to their genetic type. So it's very easy to adapt to include natural selection. And we can write down the distribution of those genealogical trees, the things that the geneticists are inferring. The problem is... Uh, it's a bit of a mess. The, the uh, expressions we write down are extremely complicated. But it's only a mess for mathematical reasons. At least if the population is relatively dense, that mathematical mess can all be approximated by a single model. And the way that we think about that single model is that what we're going to approximate is, what we're going to use as an approximating model is a model for sampling probabilities. So what my model will answer is the question, if I were to sample an individual from the point X at time T, what is the probability that it is of type A? Whatever type A might mean. Okay, so that's the question that our model would let us answer. And to explain how it works, it's convenient just to forget space for a moment, because we're just going to adapt a non-spatial model to a spatial model. So here's how it's going to work. Reproduction is again going to be based, based on events, exactly as it was before. So events now specified um, a time, that's the time when the event happens, and an impact this U, that's the proportion of the population that's going to be affected by the reproduction event. 
And let's have a look at this event and see what it does to our population. So immediately before the event, this is how the different types are distributed. I've just used three different colours to represent three different types. And I've got to select a parent. So I'm going to select my parent uniformly at random from the population. So I just threw a point just at random on 0, 1 here, and it's happened to land here in this cyan region. So the type of the parent is going to be cyan. Now, a proportion U of my population is going to be killed. The remaining 1 minus U survives. So this band here is 1 minus U times the width of that one. That's 1 minus U times that one. And this bit is 1 minus U times that one. And I replace everyone I killed with offspring of this chosen type. And so on this example, they're all cyan. And the nice thing about this model is it's very easy to write down how the ancestral lineages behave. So here I've taken a sample from my population. The sample is a size 5. And I'm wondering how it's going to behave. So what's going to happen as I trace backwards through this event? Well, as it happened, these two guys fell in the region of the population that survived the event. And so they just survived. Nothing happens to them. They're still distinct lineages in the previous generation. But these three all fell in the portion of the population corresponding to offspring. And so we know they had a common parent. So here we have an example of not a pairwise merger, but a three merger. And they merge into this common ancestral lineage. And it's very, very easy to write down mathematical expressions for the probabilities of events like this. Okay. So the idea of our approximation to the um, model as I wrote down just now, and it can be obtained genuinely as a limit of that model, is that we do the same thing in space. So now we're not just specifying the distribution of types in a single region, as we were in our non-spatial um, example just now, but for each point z and each time t, I'm telling you the distribution of the type of an individual sample from the population at z at time t. So if I sample an individual at time t from this point, what's the probability it's type A? That's the question I'm answering. Okay? And it's much the same as what we did before. Reproduction events affect bounded regions, those regions are now never empty, so I don't need to worry about empty space. I got to sample a parent, so first I'm going to sample a location from the parent, so this point Z was just uniform. Then I choose a type according to the distribution there, and it came out to be red, much as it did on the previous slide. And then I update, for everybody in this region, I kill a proportion new of individuals, and I replace them by offspring of this chosen type. And this is the fancy mathematical way of writing it, but all it's saying is that everywhere in this region, I delete just slice off a proportion U of the population and replace it by individuals of this type. And I can write down a backwards-in-time model that corresponds to that, that tells me about these genealogical trees. Because if I'm just a single individual in a sample, I want to know how the ancestry of an individual in my sample um, evolves backwards in time. I wait until the first time my individual is in a region that's affected by one of these reproduction events, and then it's got a probability U of being an offspring of the event. right? And if it is then it's going to have to jump to the location of the parent. If it's not, nothing happens. It just keeps going. And what's the location of the parent? Well, it was just sampled uniformly from the ball. So it's very easy, mathematically, to write down expressions for the way these ancestral lineages move around in time. And if a region happens to cover a whole collection of ancestral lineages, as it did here, the idea is these green guys are ancestral lineages, lineages outside the region can't be affected, but inside, each, each lineage flips a coin that comes up heads with probability U, if it comes up heads, we this was a, um, an offspring of the event, and these three offspring must all be descended from the common parent, and the location of the common parent was uniform across the ball. So individuals coalesce when they're within, um, or can coalesce when they're within region, uh, the same region uh, that's affected by an event. 
So that gives us a backwards and forwards in time um, model. Okay, so it looks pretty crude, and you probably think it's not going to have anything to do with data. Um, but remember that Kingman worked over very, very large scales, even though the Kingman coalescent, coalescent was based on this very crude Wright-Fisher model. So is it the case that if we look over kind of intermediate scales, somewhere between the scale on which Kingman works and very local scales on which this model is clearly rubbish, it might work? And when you look at allele frequencies, you think, oh, no way. Right? So this is just what a pattern of allele frequencies might look like after we've thrown down 50-odd events. It, ju it just doesn't look realistic. But if I look over larger scales, maybe it will. So here's um, something to try to convince you that there might be something in it. So this is, uh, this is a horrible bacterium, actually, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It's found in the lungs of cystic fibrosis patients, amongst other things. And this um, picture is from Kevin Foster's lab in the zoology department in Oxford. And I find this very beautiful. He, it has an incredibly high resolution uh, microscope, which allows him to observe, you can just about pick out, I hope, these individual bacteria. It's just an extraordinary picture. But we're not trying to model this. It's obvious that what's going on, so this is the edge of a bacterial colony as it's evolving. So this is just a snapshot of it. This is empty space and these are the bacteria. And obviously, what happens next depends on the particular configuration of these bacteria and their exact rod shape. But that's not what we're trying to capture. Let's zoom out a bit and look at that big bacterial colony on a slightly larger scale. So this is more like visible scales. And what we see is emerging structure. So what Kevin's done here is he's taken two populations of the um, bacterium, one blue and one green, but they are equally fit. And at the beginning of the experiment, he's just mixed them all up and he's dropped, put a little droplet onto his nutrient plate, and you can sort of still see the vestiges of it there, and he's allowed it to grow. And as it grows, we see these sectors developing. And these sectors are a kind of proxy for relatedness amongst the individuals in the population. So, for example, all these individuals in this blue sector will descend from some common ancestral bacterium back here somewhere. Okay. So what if we do the same thing for our model? It's not too bad, is it? We're obviously picking out the same basic structure, the same sectoring. And again, this is a simulation I owe to Jerome Kelleher. So we've done exactly the same thing. We've put a mixture down at time zero. We've allowed it to evolve fortuitously. We've chosen the same colours as Kevin. And you see sectors of much the same sort of pattern developing. And these sectors are ubiquitous. It's not just Pseudomonas that does it. This is yeast. This is from a paper of Oscar Halicek and his co-workers from 2007. And by changing one parameter in our model, or rather the ratio of, of um, two parameters, we can reproduce pictures like this. And I'm sorry, I forgot to email Jerome and ask him for one, so I don't have one to show you, but I, I assure you that we can um, also reproduce these narrower sectors that are characteristic of yeast. Okay. So with that sort of reassurance, we decided to press on and try and understand a bit more about spatial structure. And I wanted to tell you about some very recent work um, on things called hybrid zones. So now I have to tell you some biology and show you pretty pictures again. So as Nick Barton's got older, you know, 20 years ago, he could f just about catch up with Podisma pedestris that crawls very slowly around the Maritime Alps. He's realised there are things called plants and they hardly move at all. Um, so this is, again, Nick, um, who's a good friend, so I can say these things about him. This is Antirhinum, and these Antirhinum live um, in the Pyrenees, obviously. They don't live in some sort of damp field in the West Midlands. They live in the Pyrenees. And they exhibit what's called a hybrid zone. So a hybrid zone is when you get two genetically distinct populations coming together. And at the interface between them, 
they're sufficiently similar genetically that they can reproduce and hybridise, but the hybrids are not as fit as the pure populations were. And these are ubiquitous, and if you think about plant populations in the last glacial maximum that we talked about before, a lot of plants were sort of pushed back into refugia. After the Ice Age, they started to expand again, and when they came back together, they were sufficiently genetically distinct that you could distinguish them, and that when they interbred with one another, um, the hybrids were less fit. And so this particular hybrid zone, on one side of the zone, the antirhinum are yellow, and on the other side, they're this um, uh, pinky-purple colour. And hybrid zones are maintained by a balance between the desire of the plants to spread their offspring out and this selection against the hybrids. And I said they're ubiquitous. Here are a couple of textbook examples. So the one you'll see in every textbook is this one up here. This is mice, mus musculus, and mus domesticus. So in the northeast, mice take this form, if you catch one in your larder. And um, down here we have the mus domesticus. And you can probably see much better than I can that there is a narrow hybrid zone um, in this colour between the two populations. Here's another one. I like this one. This is um, the fire-bellied toad against the yellow-bellied toad. And they have a really wacky hybrid zone. So you can see their hybrid zone here. It goes all the way through Europe. And what this picture does, what this slide's done, is it's focused on this little bit of this hybrid zone where a lot of experiments have been done, and the hybrid zone there is almost flat. It's about 20 kilometres wide, and they've plotted allele frequency, so the frequency of the genetic type that gives you this toad versus the frequency of the genetic type that gives you this toad, and these are data points that they've plotted. Now, in a region where... So, well, OK, if you, if you don't believe in genetic drift, I do believe in genetic drift, but if you don't believe in genetic drift, then you can model these hybrid zones using this partial differential equation. It's, called the, it's a special case of what's called the Alan Kahn equation. We model it with this plus noise in some sense, so plus some genetic drift term, but it's easier to write it down in this example. And what that predicts is that actually across the hybrid zone, this should be in a curve, and the curve would look a bit like 1 plus fan over 2. And those of you who can remember what 1 plus hyperbolic tangent over 2 looks like will think, gosh, actually that's not bad. I mean, that's the right sort of shape. But it predicts a, a relatively stable hybrid zone. But the question we set out to ask was, well, OK, that's what it looks like now, but how's this hybrid zone itself going to evolve with time? And if you zoom out, I mean, this one's 20 kilometres wide. You don't have to be very far away before it looks like a sharp interface. And so with um, Nick Freeman, who's now a lecturer in Sheffield, and Sarah Pennington, who is about to take up a research fellowship in mathematics here in the Institute and at New College, um, we have shown that, at least if we start from sufficiently regular initial conditions, to make myself mathematically honest, as we zoom out, the hybrid zone becomes sharp. And that's whether we use this deterministic differential equation that um, the PDE guys use, and they already knew this result, their deterministic equation, um, or whether we also add some noise. So let's understand what happens as we zoom out. So as we zoom out, the hybrid zone becomes sharp. That's sort of clear, because it was only 20 kilometres wide in the first place. But how does it move? This involves according to something called curvature flow. And to understand curvature flow, here's a hybrid zone, a putative hybrid zone. Roughly speaking, the curvature at this point, you take the biggest circle that you can that just fits here, doesn't cross over, it just fits. And the curvature is one over the radius of that circle. Okay? And here, the circle's on the other side, and the curvature is one over the radius of this circle, so the curvature here is less than the curvature there. And it also has the opposite sign. And curvature flow will push this point inwards and this point outwards. 
And to see it in action, um, Matt Dunlop is a, a student in the University of Warwick, and he very kindly produced an illustration of curvature flow for me. Now let me just stop it so you can see the initial condition. I did not choose the name of this file. <laughs> so you can see the Batman symbol very quickly degenerates into a sausage. Um, and up here where it's almost flat, you know, nothing much happens. And these ends are pushing in and pushing in. And then, uh, uh, still not much happening. But what we're going to see is that these ends will, eventually there's not going to be any flat bit left because these ends have pushed in so far. And this will become circular. In fact, any convex region would eventually become circular. And as this shrinks, it's going to shrink, it's going to go faster and faster and faster because as the circle gets smaller, the curvature is getting bigger. So mean curvature flow goes faster and zip, it's gone. So that's what mean curvature flow does for you. So what's going to happen to our hybrid zones? So now what's going to happen if we put some noise in? What's going to happen if we use our spatial lambda Fleming VO model and put some noise in? Well, um, this is a video that Nick Freeman did. So you can see again, he'd started with something a little bit like a Batman, symb uh, Batman symbol, but he didn't have the imagination to do that. And you can see, again, it's pushing out to be sort of sausage-shaped, but there's a bit of noise here. But you can imagine, if you looked at this from far enough away and had bad enough eyesight, so for me, this looks a lot like curvature flow. Okay. I'm going to speed it up a bit, because we're getting to the end. So let's zoom it along a bit. There you are. And you see it really is doing what curvature flow did for the Batman sim symbol. It's gone almost round, and... If I keep going, it gets smaller. Okay. Now, Jerome did another one for me. Jerome did one that looks good for um, the antirhinum. So it's even the right colours. And up here, he's taken something which is nice and, nice and wiggly so that we can see that um, these bits with bigger curvature are going to disappear. This bit is almost flat and it stays almost flat. So what this zone is trying to do, and it's more like the shape of the zones that we see in our natural populations, um, it's trying to get to, be, get to be a straight line. Okay. So we can expect that in natural populations, approximately at least, if we look over large scales, things are going to evolve according to this curvature flow. It's probably the slowest example known of curvature flow, um, but it's rather cute, I think. It's rather nice that we, uh, we can see how these things will move. We have not tested yet against... Um, uh, against data because there simply isn't going to be enough. It's going to move very, very slowly. So we've assumed that those two populations that have come back together and then interfaced, that the hybrids are not as fit as the purebreds, but we've assumed that the pure populations are equally fit. In fact, very often, you can expect that the pure populations will not be equally fit. And if the pure populations are not equally fit, so I'm just showing off now, writing down random differential equations, of course, um, the equation we wrote down before, the Allen Kahn equation, this A here was equal to 1, and that made this symmetric about a half. So that said the frequency of different alleles in our population was um, symmetric about a half. And when it's bigger than a half, this term pushes me towards 1, and when it's less than a half, this term push pushes me towards 0. And so this gives me the competition between dispersal and selection. If A is not equal to 1, that's what happens when the populations are not equally fit, then we get something called the Kahn-Hilliard equation, which I can expand out as having a symmetric term and this term here, which is no longer 
uh, no longer pushing me towards um, zero and one. And this we can expect to model that situation where things are not equally fit, and in fact we add a noise term. And what happens in the situation is that the fitter type is going to spread in a travelling wave, and it's happening much faster than curvature flow. It's going to, it's going to spread across the, uh, the range of the species as a travelling wave on a much faster timescale. Now, why am I showing you this? Actually, the two interesting things for any D PDE people, um, it is interesting that if this term were not here, then we get just pure selection. So for a haploid population, as we call it, so for populations where there's only one copy of each gene in each individual, and we're just saying that one type is fitter than the other type, this term wouldn't be here, and this travelling wave would still exist, but it would spread out at a rate roughly the square root of S times A minus 1. For these populations where we've also got this selection against hybridization, um, the travelling wave will travel at a speed proportional to S times A minus 1, so a completely different speed which is because we have a pushed wave instead of a pulled wave. So that was just proving I've read some mathematics. That was for Alan's benefit. So why do mathematicians like equations like this? We like equations like this and we like models like this because we recognise them as having come up elsewhere. So this we've come across for biological reasons. It's actually a, an equation which has been studied extensively, especially in physics, and we like that kind of universality where particular models arise in lots of different contexts. And the only difference here is that the form of the noise we take is really very different from the form of the noise that the physicists use. And the other thing that mathematicians like is they always like an excuse to mention coffee, and especially an excuse to drink coffee, and even more so an excuse to spill coffee. And it turns out that this equation will model this travelling front, and the fluctuations in that travelling front should be roughly the same as the fluctuations in the travelling front when you spill your coffee all over your exam scripts. <laughs> so uh, on that note, I think I'll stop. Thank you very much.